Welcome to Teacher Quit Talk. I'm Miss Redacted. And I'm Mrs. Frazzled. Every week we explore the teacher exodus to find out what, if anything, could get these educators back in the classroom. We've all had our moments where we thought, what the hell am I doing here? From burnout to bureaucracy to soul-sucking stressors and creative dead ends. From recognizing when it was time to go to navigating feelings of guilt and regret afterwards, we're here to cut out the gaslighting and get real about what it means to leave teaching. We've got insights from former teachers from all over the country who have seen it all. So get ready to be disturbed. Join us on Teacher Quit talk to laugh through the pain of the U.S. education system. We'll see you there. Hi, I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of the Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay? Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. Дамы и господа, добро пожаловать в Prevail. Это второй сезон нашей борьбы с криминальными сволочами. Ваш ведущий Грег Олян. I'm Greg Oliar. This is Prevail. Welcome to the program. We've got a great show, a special show, a New York show. From the Downtown Alliance of New York, my friend Jessica Lappin is here. I wanted to do a show about New York. And the reason why is because I lived in New York City for 10 years. I mean, I lived in Hoboken for the first two, but still, I consider it New York City. And New York City is really special for me. It's where I feel like I made myself as a grown-up person, as an as a individual person, as a writer, all of those things. You know, New York helped make me who I am. And it's a great place. It's just a creative space. It's a place teeming with history and you could feel it everywhere. It's so big and so complicated that you can't possibly wrap your mind around what it is. And everybody's been there, man. Everybody just about has some kind of New York story, you know, for 400 years now. It's just that kind of place. So the pandemic the quarantine hit the city hard. The commercial real estate market crashed. The, the real estate was doing weird things with residential. Obviously, the restaurants and the bars were hit. You know, it was weird. And I don't know. I wanted to find out what happened. And now, a couple of years after we were able to go take our masks off and resume life or some semblance of it, you know, what's New York like now? So I asked Jess to come on. She's the consummate New Yorker. She grew up in New York. She went to Stuyvesant for high school. After college, she came back to New York. She started working in politics. She worked for uh, a city councilman who went on to become speaker of the, of the city council, the New York City Council. She herself ran for New York City Council and won. Um, her district was Midtown Manhattan. She served two terms there. 
And uh, then she was, you know, she's been president of this downtown alliance during this whole uh, this whole period of, of COVID and quarantine and all of it, doing a lot of really good work down there. So she's been in New York City politics for a long time. She knows the ins and outs. She knows the players. And I wanted to talk to her about everything, about the vibe of the place, about the feel of it, about how it's changed, about the real estate market, commercial and residential, and about the politics and who, who are these people. We hear about them. You know, the mayor, you've got Eric Adams. You've got, obviously, Alvin Bragg. Those of us on Twitter are not fans of his. I wanted to see if she knew him, what she thought of him. That answer is pretty enlightening, I thought. She has a lot to say about Bill de Blasio, which is very amusing. And Kathy Hochul, who's, you know, our governor now in New York, who took over after Cuomo was removed and uh, is running now for re-election. And, and, you know, we hope and think she's going to win. New York is super important right now. Maybe more important than it's ever been in the history of this country because the country is divided and you have your Texas and you have your Florida and you have your your states, your red states, your fascist states throwing down their fascist agendas and, you know, trying to harm women and trying to police and, 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 and marginalize and persecute gay people and the LGBT community, right? New York is not about that. New York is a place where you can see the Statue of Liberty and it's written there. Give us uh, your huddled masses, you know, <laughs> yearning to breathe free. Um, did I get it right? Give us your tired your, and poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. You get the idea. You know what I'm talking about. New York is an inclusive place. Inclusive. It has always been that way. If you have been persecuted, if you've been marginalized, if you've been bullied, if you've been whatever in your place of origin, whether that's a foreign country or whether that's some other state in the union or some other county in New York state for that matter, New York will take you in. That's what it does. That's always what it's done. And the energy, the people that it takes in, the creative force of the people that it takes in is what drives that whole city. And now with the country so divided, New York is really the capital of something again, you know? It's the capital again. It really is. It is a beacon. It is a haven. And it's so important that it stay that way. You know, it's super important. So very grateful to Jess for coming on and sharing her thoughts with me. A couple quick things up front. I wanted to update you on the schedule, the prevail schedule. This is the anti-penultimate podcast for season three. Anti-penultimate is a very, very fancy word that means third from last. So there's two more after this. The last one is going to be on Friday, August 12th. It's a pretty cool episode. We get into almost metaphysics. I think you're really going to like it. I'm excited to bring it to you. After that, I am going to take three full weeks off. I have to say this. I have to announce it or I might not do it. I'm taking three full weeks off from creating content of any kind. I'm not going to be making new podcasts. I'm not going to be going on the 5.8 or any other show. I'm not going to be writing my column. Hopefully, I won't even be on Twitter that much because... You know, I don't like to step away. It makes me nervous and anxious, but I have to. I have to I have to step away. I have to recharge my batteries. I have a couple projects that I have to finish up also in this interim period during this three-week period. And, uh, and then I'm going to come back. And I'm coming back, I think, uh, the first Sunday in September will be, I'll be writing on the, the Sunday pages that Sunday. And then that Friday, whatever Friday that is, I'll be back on Prevail on the podcast. First episode, season four. Maybe we'll even slightly tweak the intro credits. I don't know. We'll see what happens. You know, a lot is is in the ether, but uh, I'm going to have to take the three weeks off to recharge. 
and bring you guys new and improved everything because that's what I do. I'm doing it for you. I'm taking time off for you, the listener. What else did I want to share with you? I watched this movie, The Gray Man, on Netflix with Ryan Gosling and, and Chris Evans. And um, yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't recommend it. I really don't. I, I, I found it really off-putting and uh, almost like socially irresponsible. First of all, it, it, it's one of those action movies that's so ridiculous that it, it, right from the beginning, you're just like, what the fuck is this? Like, nobody can do that and withstand that. And I, you know, that works in The Avengers, which is the guys that made this movie also made The Avengers. It doesn't work in a spy movie. Even the James Bond movies have not been as good since they started giving James Bond like superhero powers. I don't need to see him do crazy shit. I don't need that. That's not how you build drama and suspense and create action. It just isn't. But, you know, the Avengers movies, they always sort of the climax is this grand battle scene where they're doing battle and this person's doing that and everybody's just dying in the crossfire below. And you don't really think about it because it's a superhero movie and it's like an alternate reality and who cares. But this is a spy movie and it's supposed to be kind of set now in the here and now and... I don't want to fucking watch a movie where people are getting mowed down with automatic weapons, where innocent people are getting mowed down with automatic weapons, where police are getting mowed down with automatic weapons. I don't want to see that. It's not funny. It's not glib. It's not cute. It's fucking upsetting. It's like traumatizing. I don't want to see it. I don't want to see beautiful things blow up. I don't want to see downtown Prague on fire. Why the fuck would I want to watch that? It's like, I know these guys have all the money in the world and they think like more and more and more and more, but like... We don't need more, more, more right now. I watched the first part of it with my wife, and after 15 minutes, she was like, come on, read the room, guys. I don't know. I mean, look, the, the actors are great. The, the dialogue is punchy. Great, fine. And they go all over the place. You know, it's shot well. These are talented filmmakers, but just, I would not, it's not art. It's not entertainment. I mean, the plot is just puerile. It's commerce. That's all that it is. And it's like, how much money do these people need? Like, why do you have to make a movie like that now? Why would you want to make a movie right now? After all the shit we've been through the last six months with the Supreme Court and all the, the Uvalde and the Highland Park massacre and all this, you're going to make a movie where people are just mowed down with automatic weapons? And we're supposed to like laugh about it? I don't know. I hate to be like moralistic, but I just really, really rubbed me the wrong way. Like it really irritated me. Um, anyway. If you're the kind of person that doesn't like anything like that, steer clear of the movie. You know, I get it. Like Ryan Gosling's great. You want to watch a movie with Ryan Gosling in it. That's why I turned it on. But this is, this is, uh, I just, I'm at a loss as to why they had to do this. I just don't get it. I don't know. We look to our artists to kind of like guide us in these times. And this ain't guiding shit. This is just, you know, picking up paycheck, honestly. It's very disappointing. I'm sad about it. It makes me mad. Um, instead of watching The Gray Man, do yourself a favor and watch Irma Vep, which is on HBO. It's an eight-part, you know, kind of mini-series thing, and it's wonderful. Irma Vep is about an actress who goes to Paris to make a eight-part mini-series about Irma Vep, where she plays the character Irma Vep, who is from uh, a silent movie, a French silent movie from like the 1910s called Les Vampires. And that's what, the, that's what the show is about. It's about making this movie. And it's about creativity. And it's about collaboration. And it's about talented people working together. And it's about 
how people lose their mojo and you know actors especially like hey i can i can do go through the motions or i can really find true art and true meaning and what's really nice about it is that you can watch it now and it has nothing whatsoever to do with all the bullshit that's happening in the world right now because there's so much bullshit it's so much it's it's really it's just weighs you down after a while right you watch this and you don't think about the bullshit but it's not an escape thing either it is something that's about art and it's about the creation of art and the importance of art and why we should strive to make good art i thought it was wonderful i really just loved it so i highly recommend irma vep on hbo and i would say do not see the gray man just skip it you know unless you really want to watch downtown prague on fire for no fucking reason at all for like the plot it's like the dumb like i can't even all right enough about that let's get back to new york city this is what this episode is about i'm excited to bring it to you so we'll be right back with jessica lapin Is a word that Donald cannot say Is it because he didn't get his way Or why can't Trump say Yesterday, suddenly It's a seditious conspiracy Overthrowing our democracy Oh, yesterday's a felony Jessica Lappin, welcome to Prevail Podcast. Well, it's great to be here. Thank you. I have not seen you in a long time. I should say up front, you and I know each other. We've known each other a long time, but you're a New Yorker. When I think of a, like a consummate New Yorker, I think of you because you were raised in the city. You went to high school. You went to high school in the city, right? I did. Yeah. When, yeah, um, I went to Edison. Okay. That's what I thought. You did not go to college there because I know you're from college. And then you came back and you went right into it and you worked in politics for a long time in the city. You still live in the city. You live in Manhattan. Um, it's okay to reveal which borough. Is that okay? Yes, absolutely. Okay. It's not a secret. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and you're still there now and you're involved with um, the Downtown Alliance, which I want to hear more about that also. But uh, I wanted to do a show about New York, okay? Because I love New York and I want, and New York has changed and Part of the beauty of New York and part of its charm is that it's always changing. Um, I think, you know, Washington Irving wrote in like 1790, ah, city ain't what it used to be. Like I'm, I'm paraphrasing, <laughs> but like he was complaining then that it wasn't the way, you know, it used to be. And I think everybody has that kind of feeling, but every new generation, there's little wrinkles and things change and they evolve. And I want to talk about uh, your, you know, what you've observed at, at during your your life in the city and how it's changed, you know, for the better, for the worse, whatever, where you think it's going, all that stuff. But before we get into the New York stuff, 
tell everybody a little bit about you, where you came from. Talk about a little bit about your, your political career and then what the Downtown Alliance is. Well, absolutely. I, you know, I am a tried and true, born and bred, lifelong New Yorker. Uh, grew up in Manhattan, downtown on 19th Street. Uh, was born in the mid-70s. So I have seen New York go through many iterations. And you're right, we are constantly changing and evolving. And that's part of our special sauce. Uh, I've, I've always loved the city and have been quite drawn to it because of the energy and the diversity, frankly, uh, and the culture and the arts. And so I, I did go to college down in DC. I wanted to get away for a few years because I kind of knew I'd probably come back, which I did. <laughs> and for me, I, I learned pretty early on in my professional career that whatever I did, I felt like I had to give back to the city and wanted to feel like what I was doing kind of made a difference in the life of the city in a small way. So, you know, I, I started pretty much right off the bat working in local government. Uh, I had, had interned on the Hill and worked in DC in politics, but I, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to be in, <laughs> in my home. That, that, that goes away really quick, I think. Like the, <laughs> any interest, like I, I lasted three days. I was like, no way, this is fine. Yeah. Um, that would be a whole different podcast all about DC. <laughs> but so, you know, I, I was fortunate. I found my way to a, a elected city council member. He had was 28 or so when he was elected in the 90s. And he represented the Upper East Side at the time. And I started out doing constituent service and press work and his assistant. And then I worked for him for eight years and, and was able to make my way up. And, and he ended up running for speaker of the city council in 2001. And I managed his speakership race. So I was really enmeshed in the rough and tumble New York City political world. Nobody thought we'd win, but we did. And then I got to work with him in city hall. Uh, unfortunately, it was right after 9-11 took place. Um, he became speaker the January right after. And so it was heavy, but significant. Um, like Bloomberg had just been elected and we worked hand in hand with him for a number of years. And then fast forward, I had the opportunity to run for office myself when my boss uh, was term limited out. So I ran for city council in 2005, representing East Midtown, the Upper East Side, and Roosevelt Island. Uh, I, I won. I had a tough four-way primary. And then it was one of the few places where Republicans still stood for office in New York back then. Uh, so I had a tough general election as well. Uh, but it was an incredible, I spent eight years in the council. And it really is a place where you are day-to-day -day working in a, in a neighborhood, in your own neighborhood. And while it may not be the big picture policy issues of the day that get debated elsewhere, you, you really see and feel what you're doing. I mean, I, I was pregnant and I worked on building a new school um, on 57th Street that ended up being where my kids went to a public elementary school, for example. Oh, wow. So, okay. you know, those moments are really exciting when you see a park that you helped, um, you know, gardening in or, or diverted funds to. So uh, I loved being in the canal, but after 16 years of, of working for or in the body, I decided to run for higher office. I ran for Manhattan Borough President in 2013, uh, and I did not win, although we ran a great race and came in a close second. And so I had to really take a step back and decide what is it I want to do. Really, for the first time since I graduated from college, right. um, I had to write a resume, which was eye-opening. Um, and, and it was a good exercise. And 
I wanted to come out of government for a time, but again, had to feel like I was involved in the civic life of the city. So I was fortunate, the Downtown Alliance, which is a business improvement district, um, and they exist all over the city, actually all over the world. Uh, there are over 70 of them now in New York. Uh, the Downtown Alliance is the largest one by budget, but uh, they're all over North America and in Europe. And you know, our, our mission is really to just try and make downtown really south of City Hall, so very much downtown, dynamic, competitive, vibrant, uh, and it has changed dramatically even in the eight years I've been there, certainly in the 20 you know, plus now since 9-11. So it, it's been kind of a special time downtown in the Renaissance and bringing it back, not just the World Trade Center site, although that anchors the neighborhood in many ways, but the surrounding pockets as well. And that's, it's it's focused on development, like development of, of the buildings or the people or the cultural stuff, or what what is what is it exactly? So, so we do a, a number of different things. So we're funded by the commercial property owners. They pay additional okay. tax levy. So our, our goal is, is mostly to serve the workers and the businesses there, although, you know, from small businesses all the way up to Spotify. What we do, of course, helps the residents as well. Um, but that's our primary focus is to compete with other business neighborhoods in the city and, and even in, a, in across the country. So 60% of our budget goes right back into the neighborhood. We have a sanitation team and a public safety team. Those are 120 people who are out 24 seven, keeping the neighborhood cleaner and safer. Uh, we do homeless outreach and run a, a free bus service as well. Uh, we have an economic development research team, which tracks the, the trends that we're seeing and the growth of the neighborhood so that we know how to direct our programming and funds. And then we have a communications and marketing team that really just promotes the neighborhood uh, through social media and otherwise. Uh, we have a small tourism practice as well, because over time it has become like a must-see. If you're coming to New York now, you're, you're coming downtown for at least a day, which was not the case at one point in time. So that those are kind of like in broad strokes what we do. I can get into a little bit more of the details. Clearly, COVID upended everything. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we, we literally, we had just adopted our budget for the upcoming year and we literally tore it up and started from scratch and uh, really revised all of our focused efforts, um, much more so on the small businesses, the retailers who clearly were struggling, uh, the essential businesses who were allowed to remain open and the others. So for example, we did a $800,000 grant program to help small businesses pay their rent early on in the pandemic. Uh, we created a free online ordering platform for our restaurants who were being gouged by Grubhub and Seamless, so they had their own alternative. Uh, we paid a firm who would go into individual businesses and advise them on how to reconfigure their space in COVID to make it safe so that customers felt like it was okay to come back. So we, we started to do things more based on our bricks and mortar shops, uh, which was newer for us, frankly. But, you know, fast forward... Now we're back into a mode of really welcoming the workers who have uh, come back to the offices. Uh, and we're doing that through arts programming, placemaking. We just had a three week long performing arts festival that we put on uh, where we had playwrights, we commissioned work where they wrote about some of our small business entrepreneurs and, and did a show nightly that was free to the public. We did historical walking tours 
Uh, and we actually just brought back a big dine around food festival where we had 10,000 people come and eat outside and take advantage of some of our, our restaurants to promote them, uh, which was again, free for them to participate. So, you know, it, some of those things we were doing before, but we've certainly doubled down because we want people when they are in the neighborhood to remember like why they come to work, why they get out of their pajamas and, and leave their, their apartments and to also celebrate, you know, arts and culture are one of the reasons that I live in New York. It's one of the things that people love, both our food, most people think of food as culture, um, but to, to really make a more concerted effort to promote that. It sounds like you're doing a lot of good work and that you were able to to sort of be nimble and 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 change gears on the fly, which is, you know, a testament to, to your good work there. So uh, good on you. Um, it's one of the things Greg, I do not miss about government. I loved being in government, but boy, everything takes forever. <laughs> uh, and it is, it's really nice to be this sort of quasi-governmental agency where if we decide we want to do something, you know, we, we can do it. Yeah. It's, it, it's interesting you mentioned bringing the tourists downtown because, you know, Giuliani was a, was a just a, an abominable mayor person, just everything. But the one thing that he did do is make sure that all the tourists stayed in that little band on 42nd Street so that the rest of the city was left open to those of us who lived there. We didn't have to keep running into these people. So now I guess what you're saying is tourists are exploring beyond this, this little band that Giuliani has created to sort of round them up. Oh, I mean, 100%. I mean, it, it, I mean, look, we always had the Statue of Liberty and the Staten Island Ferry and the Stock Exchange. There were things that people, you know, would come to for sure. But having the 9-11 Memorial and Museum, the Oculus, uh, the, the redevelopment that happened at Brookfield Place, which is shops and dining, and, you know, there's enough to do in, in more than one day. And so what, what's happened is we have almost 40 hotels downtown, which is sort of crazy to me. And when you think back to probably three on 9-11, and, and that's because people want to stay. And pre-pandemic, that was mostly business travelers. And what's been fascinating for us, our hotels are 90% full this summer. And it's, it's not the traditional business traveler. I mean, they have come back some, but it's really people who uh, are coming as tourists. And to your point, they don't want to stay in Times Square. You know, especially if you've been to New York before, all right, maybe you're checking the box that first time, but they want a more authentic experience where they can go to Brooklyn or they can go to New Jersey or, you know, it's just, it's something a little bit different, but not at all off the beaten path. Bless your heart for, for saying that people might want to go to New Jersey, but as somebody from New Jersey, I can assure you, no one wants to go to New Jersey. Um, <laughs> it's just not, it's just not what happens. Um, now for people that don't, that are listening to this, that don't know anything about New York city, the, the, the lower downtown, downtown, what, what Jessica is talking about is, is the part that isn't like a grid. It's, it's like all the roads are, are crooked because they, they made the North roads like parallel to true North and it's this warren of very, very old um, sub-cobblestone streets and stuff like that. And it's very cool looking, but has, at least when I lived there in the 90s um, and the very early aughts, um, 
there wasn't a lot going on down there, certainly not after dark. I mean, it was a place where people worked and then work was over and then they left. And if you went down there at 10 o'clock at night, it was a ghost town, but it's, it's beautiful, like architecturally and all that stuff. There's really old, cool buildings down there. And um, the other thing you said about the restaurants pivoting during COVID, um, the last couple of times I, I went to New York, I went, you know, during the, the post COVID pandemic period. And what's happened now to the restaurants is everyone's just out on the sidewalk. They've created these pods out on the sidewalk where there's like, there's plastic roofs and little tables in these pods outside. And so for a long time, everyone would just go out there and only go inside, I guess, to go to the bathroom. I don't know. The waiters <laughs> would go in and, and uh, be like, oh my God, it's hot out or whatever. But the, are those still there or is that a temporary thing? Um, a little bit of both. They are still okay. there. Um, and I think there's some version is here to stay because people really embraced it and loved it. Yeah. Um, the, the structures that went up quickly and haphazardly, they're going to be some guidelines moving forward about <laughs> what will be allowed. Some of them are not going to fare well as time goes by. Um, so there, there will, there will be outdoor dining, but what it exactly it looks like. Um, is remains to be seen. The other thing that you you know you mentioned, it's funny. We like to say Lower Manhattan, you know, founded in 1625, sort of the original downtown, um, and we do have these kind of windy roads and cobblestone streets. And it's 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 amazing. You said 10 p.m. there was nothing to do. I would say by 6 p.m. there was. I was probably, being generous. Yeah, <laughs> you're being very generous. Um, it it definitely you know, the, the closing bell would ring on the stock exchange and everybody would run on the, you know, 50 Scarsdale or wherever they were going. What was fascinating for years and years, the Alliance really pushed restaurants to stay open for dinner because they would only do lunch business for kind of mm. business folks. The exact opposite has happened now in the pandemic where they're all open for business for dinner and we're pushing them to reopen for lunch. Oh, wow, uh, okay. Because, you know, we have over 60,000 residents downtown now which is crazy because that's give or take, depending on the numbers, probably four times the number of people who live there on 9-11, right? You know, the 9-11 thing is interesting, especially downtown, because obviously the World Trade Center was downtown. Downtown also isn't as wide as the rest of the, the island. You know, it's, it's narrower. It comes kind of to a point and uh, there's less real estate down there anyway. And then you have that happening. I remember I, I worked for a uh, a real estate trade magazine, and I would do articles, and I interviewed people about the future of Lower Manhattan. And I remember some guy, I can't remember his name, saying, insisting, oh, no, it will be back. It has to be back. The bedrock down there is the only place you can build tall buildings the way that you make it really high and all this kind of stuff. And he was so bullish on it. This was not very long after. I think it was three months after, and he was still very bullish on it. So it's nice to see that what he said has, has come true and that you know it's all come back. I mean, 100%. It, it, and it's one of the things I remind people when they ask about the future is that the progress has been tremendous, but it took time, right? It did yeah. not happen overnight. There, there were a lot of debates about what should or shouldn't happen downtown. Should we rebuild at all? People said, and not just people, you know, major critics in the New York Times said, nobody will ever go to work in a high-rise building ever, anywhere. You know? yeah. And and clearly, you know, those kinds of prognostications did not come to pass. But it, it took a while uh, for residents to embrace, for businesses to come. 
And, and there was a pretty rapid shift in the last five to 10 years where, you know, and I give Condé Nast a lot of credit, frankly, because they were one of the first sort of sexier household name firms that planted a flag down there. And it really caught people's attention. And in, in that time, you know, you've seen Spotify, Uber, Gucci, Hugo Boss, Revlon. I mean, the list goes on and on of companies that would never have given it a look, realizing that it has a lot of, it has the character, the authenticity that frankly, parts of Midtown just don't. Yeah. And it also, you know, as the creative classes move to Brooklyn, and I will say again, the Jersey waterfront in particular, Jersey City, Hoboken, uh, Dumbo, for those um, competitive, you know, advertising firms, architecture firms, it's much closer to where their, their people live. They can take the ferries in, they can bike in. And even before the pandemic, that was highly attractive for those companies. They were cutting the commute time in half for the bulk of their people. And so it was a confluence of different things of the neighborhood transforming physically. I mean, I don't want to underestimate that. Again, what happened at the site, but around the neighborhood, the new development, plus the, the creative classes moving, plus, you know, the sort of thought leaders saying, you know, it's actually cool here. Um, and then that all sort of created this great momentum where then you had the restaurants and the bars and others follow. And so now, you know, we have, you know, I, I would still say it's not, you know, it's not maybe as hip and happening as the Lower East Side at 10 o'clock at night, but there's a lot to do. And there are definitely people pushing baby carriages, walking dogs, um, sitting out at cafes, you know, early in the morning and late at night. Um, so let's talk about real estate for a little while, because I know this isn't necessarily your your super area of expertise, but you've... Everybody who lives in New York, in my experience, knows a little bit more about real estate than people that live anywhere else <laughs> on earth, because you're always constantly, what's the rent? What's this? What, what's my apartment worth? What, whatever it is. I, like I said, I worked for the, the real estate trade magazine. And what I determined was, and this is now going back 10, 15 years, that if somebody just wired $5 million into my bank account, I could basically buy an apartment not much bigger than the one I was in, but it would have better amenities, you know, like that. So that that's like, that was the, the thing. But I feel like the real estate has taken some kind of um, shift because of COVID. Because first of all, a lot of the, the commercial places went remote. So a lot of people moved. I lived in, I live in Ulster County. And I believe that Ulster County had the highest, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Increase in property values and sales of anywhere in the country after the pandemic, because everybody from New York moved up here, um, which is both good and bad. We have a <laughs> word up here. The word is city it. And that's the word that we use. Um, <laughs> uh, and I, I, a, a, as one of those city it's, I can, I'm allowed to say it, you know, because I was once a, a city it myself and probably still am at heart. But then the commercial stuff sort of shuts down and it, and the rents kind of, we're doing a weird thing. And I went online and looked and I'm like, I think I might actually conceivably, if I sold my house, I could buy an apartment maybe like in Manhattan. And I don't think there was ever a point that that would have been feasible for me to do. And it isn't because the, the money, it's because the, pr the prices are, are low enough that, that uh, it, you know, it almost at a historical low, at least in my lifetime of checking this stuff out. Is that 
the case, do you think, or am I just looking in the wrong places? Like, no, no, no. I think you may have, you're right. Although you may have missed your window, Greg. To oh no, the window's dead. I don't have any money anyway, but the window's <laughs> gone. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, clearly there were deals to be had uh, for a good while. I have been stunned to see that, you know, first quarter of this year, we are at record high residential rental rents downtown, blowing out even pre-pandemic numbers. I find that fascinating because part of the appeal was walking to work for a lot of people. And, you know, as you said, people aren't in the office five days a week as they were, but clearly are flocking at least downtown. You know, I don't know the numbers elsewhere, um, but it's it's become very hot again in terms of the residential side. The commercial side is obviously different. You know, there is a shaking out that is happening. And I, I mean, I would say a few things. I don't think anybody believes we're going back to nine to five, five days a week, maybe ever, definitely not anytime soon. What that sweet spot is per company, is it one day, two days, three days? I think very few will be at zero days. You know, so so people are, are figuring that out, which teams need to be in and how often. We have definitely seen big upticks just in terms of pedestrian counts downtown. Uh, I don't think we've hit the ceiling. You know, we're probably at about 40% of people in their offices on average. I don't think that's the ceiling. I think we'll grow beyond that. But what is it? Is it 60%? Is it 70%? I don't know. But I think too many of, of the executives I speak to, again, across all different industries, sort of recognize that you can be productive from, from home, but not exclusively. And there is a creativity and a camaraderie uh, and a culture that goes missing if people are never together. And especially as more time passes, it's one thing if you know your team and you work together and then you know March 14th comes and everybody goes home. Now enough time has passed, people are being hired, people are leaving. If you don't even know your boss, it's just, you know, your coworkers, it's it's hard. So, you know, but there is a shifting and, you know, there are definitely big companies that are taking few, you know, less space as they renew their leases. Uh, there's some that are, are growing uh, quite, you know, as FinTech in particular, uh, we see them just taking more and more space. Google, I mean, even in the pandemic, spent a billion dollars on space in New York City. You're not doing that if you expect your people to be at home. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. So all that to say, you know, we're still in the kind of leveling off phase. And I, I think that will continue for a while. And so I just don't believe anybody who's sort of has a hardline view of either side of the equation. But there will be space over time in commercial buildings that will have to be rethought, repurposed. I mean, you joked about amenity space uh, in your apartment building, but we're seeing that more and more. Uh, landlords putting in outdoor space on a vacant floor or cafeterias or yoga rooms or even just kind of common spaces because people are demanding that. Um, and they have the the space to do it. So, you know, it'll be very interesting. I, I think, you know, if you're, I'm very bullish long, long term in 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, I think new companies will come and companies will grow and excess space will be taken up. But I also, as I said, have that perspective of the World Trade Center site where it took 20 years and we still have two buildings to build, by the way, right? That space wasn't built and occupied in a minute. It took a long time, yeah. <laughs> but but now they are.
And that was, you know, rebuilt from, from, you know, whole cloth. So, you know, it, it's, it's going to be interesting to see what, what are the longer term impacts. What I always worry about with New York, you mentioned the creative classes living in Brooklyn. I, I, even when I lived in, in New York, I couldn't stand Brooklyn and I, I still can't stand Brooklyn. I know. Uh, like if I, if I picking up a novel that somebody's written and I look at the bio on the back and it says, this author lives in Brooklyn, I just put it away. I don't want to, <laughs> I, I just, I'm sorry. I'm prejudiced. I, I, if you're going to be in New York, you should live in Manhattan. In my opinion, um, Brooklyn is just a better located Philadelphia. Sorry. That's just my opinion. Um, but you know, I get, but when you say the creative classes living in these places, even those places are really fucking expensive now and and have been for such a long time i mean it time was i mean not in our lifetimes but we've read this in books back when you could go to greenwich village and live there really cheap and that's why artists went there to begin with and i worry that the pockets of the city where such things were possible are becoming so far beyond the manhattan city limits that it's going to eventually just become a city of bankers and financiers, which is death to any sort of cultural thing. Again, in my opinion, nothing against bankers or financiers, but you know, it's it's the artsy people that make the the, the nightlife sing and hum. I think so. And part of the 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 difficulty of New York is that so much real estate, residential real estate, is owned but not occupied. You have rich people, rich Americans, but also rich people from foreign countries buying really nice apartments and then going there two or three times a year and they just sit there vacant. Meanwhile, all the cool people live in like Bay, Bayside or something and they're on the subway an hour and a half each way. So do you think that's going to ba balance out too? Like what, where do you think that's headed? Well, I mean, that is one of the big existential crises, not just of New York, right? But San Francisco, lots of other cities who grapple with this Portland, Boise now. Yeah. Is is that um, you, know, you have this affordability problem that, feeds yeah, homelessness and, and other issues, really income inequality sitting at the heart of it. And, and that's a critical issue for our political classes. It's not easy to deal with from a policy perspective, but, you know, there have been ideas thrown out there like a pieta tear tax, to your point. You know, if you're some billionaire who's buying a place on 57th Street to spend one week a year, well, then maybe you should pay us a lot to do that. Yeah, <laughs> right? sure. Um, and, you know, there's there's also the sort of endless debate about supply and people, you know, come down on different sides of that. But at the end of the day, it's why you never bet against New York. People have been coming for 400 years and they will continue to, both immigrants and others. And so you, you there is probably just not enough supply in Manhattan and elsewhere yeah. uh, to kind of feed that growing demand. And, and there are lots of other economic issues, cost of land, cost of labor to build, right? The factor into then the prices people demand. Those are harder to solve, but there are ways to do that with tax incentives and otherwise. And so I, I do think that's critically important. It is the big difference from when you know you and I moved there after college. I could still in the late 90s buy a studio apartment in East Midtown for $75,000, right? It might've been in the size of a shoebox, but, <laughs> but it was mine. You might've even been in that apartment at some point in time. But, you know, and I did that because it was cheaper 
than having a roommate and renting at that time. Those days are long gone. And by the way, mind you, I was working in government making $26,000 a year, and I could still afford to do that, right? right. So that that is a real as I like an existential issue um, for how we, you know, especially in New York, our immigrants are are part of our magic. And so making sure that they and artists and others have a place uh, is is a is a critical one. It's gonna be interesting to see because I I agree. I think people will always go and they'll always figure it out. And what makes it kind of fun or, or unpredictable is where the next hip place turns up. It's almost sometimes you can tell and sometimes it's like, wait, what? You know, <laughs> I don't know. We, we didn't do Brooklyn. We moved to Queens. We moved to Astoria, uh, which was great. But, you know, once you have a kid, then that that high subway thing is not is not going to happen. Speaking of high things, what, what's that thing called in the West Side? Is it, is it the High Line? What is that thing called? The High Line, which is, yeah, it's fabulous. Does that really exist? Because I've never seen it. I've heard tell of it. It was built after, and every time I, I go to the city, I think I should go see that Highline thing, but I've never actually seen it. So I suspect that it doesn't exist. And it's like the <laughs> swimming pool in my high school where the seniors are like, yeah, you should go to the, to the Highline. It's a, just keep walking until you hit the, you can see New Jersey. You'll see it. You know, it's real, I, it's I, there. I can attest, it does okay. exist. Um, <laughs> it is a former elevated freight line. And it's become a, a park and it's opened in phases, but it's, you know, you just sort of stroll through and it can be crowded. It's a very popular attraction, but it is, it's a great adaptive reuse of, um, of a space. And, and, and this, tr this train line went through buildings and it's a kind of, you can sort of picture what it must have been like with these freight trains hauling, you know, underneath and through these cutouts in these existing buildings. Um, it's it's pretty great. Yeah. We do now up upstate, we do that. We 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 have the rail trails and you know, we take what 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 the where the trains were and we pave it so we can go do the thing. So we did that before you guys did. <laughs> um <laughs> oh, this is what I wanted to ask you. Now you you mentioned you've been, you're younger than me. I want to say, I want to make that clear. You're younger than me. Um, but you've been in the city uh, pretty much your whole life. So what what's the thing that, that that's changed the most, do you think, in that time? Because I'll tell you mine, even when I live there and when I go back there now, it was all these bicycles. There's so mm -hmm. many bicycles in the city that it's I, it's crazy to, to imagine that they can function, but they do. Um, but what, what do you think for you? What's your what's the thing that's changed the most? It's interesting because. Uh, so much, you know, sort of going back to this, sort of for better or worse, it was much grittier when I was growing up in, in the 70s, 80s, the early 90s. You know, so the the upside, as we were just discussing, was that it was cheap to live. You could buy housing, you could afford to raise a family much more comfortably. Um, you know, the downside, of course, was crime was through the roof. Uh, you know, when you'd get on the subway, I mean, that's one of the starkest changes to me. They were graffiti ridden. There was no air conditioning. They weren't safe. You know, now the subways, you know, people take four in the morning and they don't think much of it. I certainly wasn't doing that in high school. I can tell you that. So, you know, I think there's the sort of yin and yang. People romanticize an earlier time when there was more funky nightlife and a more bohemian vibe, honestly. I mean, when my parents chose to stay in the city in the 70s and raise a family, everybody thought they were insane. 
And the truth was like, it was sort of a hardy band, right? The people who chose when the city was bankrupt and the Bronx was burning and all of those things were happening. It was, it was sort of like a hippie counterculture move to, to live in the city. It's sort of hard to imagine, you know, and that's not the way it is today. You know, there's been sort of a disnification of the city, you know, Times Square is the perfect example of how it's, it's changed. Um, but, you know, the upside is it is a much safer place to live. And despite, you know, the recent uptick in crime and the headlines, which are which are true, and the gun violence that's happening all over the country, not unique to us, unfortunately, you know, that has changed things some, but we're still one of the safest cities in America and much safer than we were in, in you know, 1995. So, you know, I think that is the, when I think about my children, I have a 15 year old and 11 year old and how they go about the city. It's, you know, I was taught if any, you know, make sure nobody's following you duck into a store. If you think somebody is, you know, our parents would meet us at the subway. We weren't allowed to take it at night. My son has no sense of that. Right. And he rents city bikes like all the time. He bikes all over the city and bike lanes and he goes, you know, he takes the subway alone. And so he has no perception of, of what the city was like then. So I think that's probably the biggest change, you know, sort of writ large um, for me. That's a positive. Uh, and and it, it's in some ways, um, you know, I think a, like a, a happier place. Yeah, I think that's I think that's that's fair to say. I mean, if you look at like Tompkins Square Park, say, which time they they had to shut it down in 19, I think 91 or 93, sometime in the early 90s. They had to physically shut down the park because the drugs there were so terrible. And it was such a scene all the time. People were ODing and this and that. Now it is a place where people just bring babies and strollers and there's swing sets and, and stuff yeah. like that. And it's in, in 20 years, that's what it went from being literally so bad that the, they shut it down to here's my baby running around in the, in, in the park. So the, yeah, I mean, I think that's fair. And I think that yeah, certainly. I think about that. It's so funny. I grew up near Union Square. It was drug dealers and hookers. And in fact, that's one of the reasons they started the first green market and put it in Union Square, which now, I mean, you know, green market is a, it's a landmark. It's bustling. There are people selling flowers. They have holiday markets and, you know, you see people making out and it's, it's lovely. And to your point, I mean, it's, it's sort of unrecognizable to me um, how Union Square has changed. Union Square is insane. Cause I live, I went to NYU for one semester in 1993 and we used to cut through, I, we lived in Carlisle, which was on one side of Union Square. And we would cut through to go to the bar, bar 19, where we went to on the other side. And it was a little bit sketchy just walking through the, it was one block or whatever it is, what you could see where you were going. And it was still like, I don't know. And now you go down there and it's, like you said, it's this huge farmer's market. Um, it, it's nuts. It's, it's like a, it's like a Whole Foods outside or something. <laughs> and, uh, you know, for people that haven't been, I'm trying to paint the accurate portrait. Although there's a guy on the side of the, the road on the, on the uh, whatever side, the west side of, of Union Square, uh, who had a, a table up selling books. And I'm almost positive it's the same guy that had the same table in 1993. <laughs> almost positive it's the same guy. So, you know, things change. They stay the same. All of my, also all of my touchstone places are all either gone or unrecognizable or, you know, Astor Place. It used to just be this big <laughs> dirt path there. And now they've built this gleaming glass building you can't even I can't I look up I don't know where I am I feel like I'm in the Jetsons or something 
but uh you know it's still the same geographically the same place so it's a, it's a very new york thing everybody protests everything new that's coming in and then five years later when they close everybody mourns the loss of the thing <laughs> they protested five years ago <laughs> I don't even know if that's unique to New York. I I, I don't even know. Um, you mentioned the crime and, and the crime being, you know, going down certainly si since the 90s and absolutely since the 70s, um, you know, on a downward tick and having a slight probably uptick during COVID, which I attribute to there just being fewer people out um, in general, which, you know, the fewer people there are out, the fewer eyes there are out, the, the, the sketchier it becomes and the easier it is to mug somebody or something like that. So, uh, but you wanted to make the point, and I, I think we should make the point that New York is still remains one of the safest cities in the United States, you know, by in terms of, of uh, crime. Um, so when things happen in New York, they tend to be exaggerated by the, the right-wing owned press that always wants to make New York seem bad because New York is in a, is a blue city in a blue state and they want it to seem like some sort of hellscape um and it isn't you go there and it's nice like you said it's it's relatively safe compared to other places um there's lots of nice things happening there's kids riding the subway alone riding bikes through town you know through through town and uh you know you how you get mad when you see stories like that or you roll your eyes like what do you I do. And I've got to tell you, I mean, yes, the the right wing media is the worst, but the New York Times really got under my skin too last year because they they took on a much more negative tone. And and um I learned that it was on purpose. I mean, it was really in part to drive clickbait. It was not, it was editorially on purpose. Um, and I always have thought of them as sort of, you know, a more neutral outlet and also one that sort of you know told it like it was but celebrated the city and so i, I place blame at their feet as well um because i i think it's look there are there are trends that we're facing whether it's homelessness or gun violence mental illness and the lack of services for people with mental illness you know those are real issues that need to be addressed affordable housing crisis but i do travel a lot both for work and for pleasure and and having been not so distant past in places like Philadelphia, New Orleans, Seattle. It's much worse. I mean, just just how those cities look and feel. And so, you know, while I understand why certain headlines are generated and, and that there have been truly more crimes committed than than in the past year or two, you know, to your point, everybody I know who comes says, oh my gosh, this is not at all what I thought it was going to be. It's much nicer here. And she went, they people eating al fresco and people riding bikes and people, you know, sort of out and about. So, you know, if we have a perception issue and, you know, perception becomes reality and there is a little bit of reality there, but, but by and large, you know, we are, we're doing better uh, than, than I think a lot of our peers. And I also would say, even with the New York, obviously it depends what neighborhood you're in and where you're going. We have fared better downtown than some of the other central business districts. Uh, and there, there are different factors, but you know, I think a big one being that we, we do have over 60,000 residents. So you have many more bodies, eyes, ears, and people on the streets than you do in say Midtown, frankly. 
and, but there are other factors at play as well. Uh, and so we've been lucky. I mean, part of it is our work. I'd like to thank. I mean, we really do uh, aggressively clean the streets, remove graffiti, empty garbage cans, remove snow, which are things that I think people just expect the city does, but they don't, frankly. And so when you have a business improvement district with 100 plus people out on the street every day doing that, that work. It just looks nicer. I mean, we plant flowers, you know, so so people come down and they say, oh, it looks nice here, but there also is a little more vibrancy uh, and, and bodies on the street that, that has an impact as well. So, you know, I think some of these challenges, uh, you know, the mayor has said he's, he's taking aim at them. He recognizes that it's important for the city to look good and, you know, to be safer, but also to feel safer. And so, you know, I, I, I take him at his word and they're, they're really trying. It's interesting you mentioned the New York Times and most of the people listening to this are giggling when you said, oh, the New York Times is, is bad now. It's weird because everyone knows this. Um, that I, Since Trump, really, the Times, the editorial staff of the Times has been so terrible by and large that I just call them, I put the little E in and I call it the NYT instead of the NYT. Um, you know, they're just, they're promoting bad shit. And they've been doing that for a long time. And there's plenty, there's lots of great journalism in it. And then, but the, whoever's running the editorial thing seems to, I don't know, not be working for the, for the right team, um, which is a frustration for, for me. And people listening to this will understand what I'm talking about. Uh, what else was I going to say? You mentioned the mayor. I want to talk about now, walk me through the, <laughs> The, the the linear progression of mayors that we had from Giuliani, and then we had Bloomberg, who I think people outside the city don't like as much as the people who lived in the city. Is would you say that or? I think he will. I think that as even as more time goes by, there's great appreciation for how good of a manager he was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then who was after him? Was it? Um, is it well, De Blasio or was there somebody between them? I can't remember now. No, it was Bill de Blasio. Okay, so it is. So it's de Blasio, who everyone seemed to just hate instinctively right away, and that, that was it. Well, he, I mean, it's it's interesting because I, you know, I for I have some sense of Koch. Certainly worked in government with Giuliani. I worked very closely with Bloomberg uh, when I was in office. I served with Bill de Blasio in the council. Um, you know, Eric Adams, I I know, but less well. Bill de Blasio hated the job and in like first of all he like barely went to work like I, the times did do one piece which i found entertaining where they looked at his schedule this was before the pandemic and there was like 33 days in a row he hadn't even gone to city hall he would show up at 11 after he went to park slope to work out at the gym you know he he clearly didn't like the job and he would tell people that privately so that came through you know? yeah. <laughs> and and then on top of that that's that's one thing if you then have really strong people working for you and under you who you empower to make decisions which is what mike did right he hired the best and the brightest people came into government who would not have otherwise and then he let them do their jobs Bill de Blasio's first group of people, deputy mayors and others, were, were pretty good. He was so horrible to work for. They all left and he couldn't hire people. And partly that was because he wouldn't let them do anything. Mm -hmm. So it was just a bit of a, of a mess. Um, and it's unfortunate. And it's funny because, 
you know, somebody did a profile I, I thought was so well done where they sort of, you know, discussed the personality of Koch and his combativeness and he'd meet you at this Brooklyn Bridge, how am I doing? Dinkins, who would be out every night in his tuxedo and love the nightlife. Um, you know, Giuliani was Giuliani. I'm not going there. Um, Gi Gi Giuliani liked the job, though. I think we could we could safely say that he liked the job. You see where I'm going with this, yeah, right? Mike Bloomberg yeah. loved it so much he changed the law so he could stay four more years, right? They all loved the job. They all had different personality styles, and this guy De Blasio just like hated it. And I I I, I couldn't understand like how do you not love this job? It's one of the best jobs in in, in America, hardest jobs, but could be so rewarding. And if you don't want to go to the Met Gala because you think it's too fancy for you, then go salsa dancing in the Bronx. If you don't want to sit in the owner's box at the Yankees game, well, then go to a pickup basketball game in Harlem. Like New York has everything. So to sort of not like anything makes no sense. And then he wanted to write and then he ran for president. Like, did he think oh, that, he that, sure was, did. that was going to get better? Like, I, I don't know. Did he look at Trump and be like, wow, here's one guy working less than me. I want that job. He, and then he he floated. He ran for governor for a hot minute, and now he's running for Congress in Brooklyn. He is okay. Yeah, it's in a very competitive race. They should elect him because then he'll leave. <laughs> <laughs> so what's the deal with Eric Adams? Because you know, as a, as an impartial observer, not knowing anything, it seems a little nutty, but also a little bit like he seems like a very New York character to me. And we've had mayors like this in the past, not in our lifetime, but going, if you go back earlier in the 20th century and even before that, who are just these larger than life personalities that enjoy that kind of thing. And they don't, you're not quite sure what you're getting all the time. I, I don't know. What, what's your sense of him? I, I think, you know, um, there's this sort of old saying in politics that like you, 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 um, you, you oh, now I'm going to forget it, <laughs> but but we want the sort of um, antidote, the antithesis to what we had before, and that I think is Dick Adams to a T, right? He loves New York, he loves the job, he's out every night, he's larger than life, he's working from six a.m. till two in the morning, and he's a cheerleader, right? Because the other thing about Bill De Blasio was he he was very negative, right? And so, you know, I think especially coming out of COVID, New Yorkers wanted a booster and somebody who would entertain us. Now we want somebody who's gonna do a good job, but I think he, he was sort of personality wise, the right fit for the moment. And, you know, it, it's interesting, it's still early. You know, I, people forget how long it takes to, to, uh, to sort of build your team and get up and running in a sure. place like yeah. New York. And his deputy mayors, which were all ladies. Uh, and I think, well, uh, he's added a couple now who are men, but his original announcement were all ladies and almost all women of color. Excellent choices. Women who have great experience in and out of government um, and, and really smart. And so that was a really good sign to me. Um, I think he's pretty much finished now putting most of his commissioners in place. Um, and so, you know, I, I think he has, you know, as I said, he's made no secret the quality of life and public safety are a number one. And he's quite frustrated by, you know, the Supreme Court's ruling on guns as he should be, um, and the flow of guns that come into New York and how he's gonna deal with that because that's hard. <laughs> but he has the right focus. 
I believe, and, and also has talked a lot about jobs and economic development. And just from my work perspective, the importance of bringing people back, both for our tax base and for our long-term success as a city. So, um, you know, I think he's he's off to a good start in terms of putting a team in place and articulating the right priorities. Okay, good. That makes me happy because I wasn't sure. And he's entertaining, right? right? Yeah. He got his ear pierced on the first day. He's, you know, he's, you know, he's we, definitely entertaining. There's no question about that. I mean, that wasn't that wasn't the issue. But it, the fact that he's got good people as lieutenants is that's the best news because, you know, the trick of I would think of any job like that is you have to have really good people working for you, let them do their thing, and then you could just do whatever you want. You're just the face of the operation, and you go here, you go there, and you, you know, free tickets to the Yankee game, and you go, you know, you just enjoy yourself. It's fun in, in theory, right? So, okay, that's good. I'm glad to hear that. Um, what about what what what's up with Alvin Bragg though? What what do you hear anything about that? This whole Trump thing is not we're not happy with him. Yes, our district attorney in Manhattan. I, you know, I, I would say a couple things about about DA Bragg. You know, one, I think you have to take a step back and and remember the race he ran in, which was uh, he he was not the most far left out there candidate by a lot. In his field, he was probably a little more middle of the road. But when he came into office, you know, he 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 made some missteps, you know, and and he's admitted it as much. He he didn't communicate well with his own team, which then filtered out to the public and created a lot of confusion about what they were and were not going to prosecute and how they were going to operate. And he's owned that. Um, and he has tried to do a lot more outreach, both within the civic world and the political world and also the business world. I mean, he put together a small business task force, for example, that he asked me to participate in as we were seeing a lot of issues with shoplifting. And so I think he got it. He got that he didn't start off well, and he's trying to recalibrate. Um, and it's it's a hard thing to navigate be given just how how divided politics are you know within the democratic party and or the socialist party in in the city right now and i think he more than most is kind of in the middle of that and realizing that we have to be or i hope realizing tougher on crime um and taking a look at issues like bail reform, um, but also that you don't want to send somebody to Rikers for months because they jumped a turnstile or urinated in public. So, you know, that's sort of where we are. Um, and I, I I do think he's trying. Okay. That's a delightfully diplomatic answer. Thank you. That was good. You get an A plus for... for... <laughs> For, you're, you flashed your politician skills. I feel like if you're going to run for a job, it's like you, you're running for the job of dog catcher and there's one big dog that's like Clifford the big red dog on the loose. And then you get the job and you're like, hey, I'm not going to do anything about Clifford. I'll arrest all yeah, the others. Yeah. You, you know. can't sort of single him out. You have to, I mean, he's not unique amongst district attorneys in New York City. By the way, nor is he doing much different than, than his predecessor. Well, his predecessor was 
problematic also. But, but yeah. you know, Psy had already put in place a lot of these measures in, in response to kind of the hue and cry over uh, people being sent to jail for long periods of time for low-level offenses. And so, you know, there were people in his race, I mean, to your point about dog catcher, who I was watching these debates saying, like, we won't prosecute anything. And some, and then moderator in a debate saying, you won't prosecute a hate crime. I won't prosecute a hate crime. We're just going to educate them to have less hate in their heart. You know, so again, I, I sort of go to like, he was not the most radical person right. yeah, yeah. by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and, and some of these criminal justice issues, you know, I, I think everybody agrees if you've been caught three times with a gun or convicted of gain violence, or I would hope everybody would agree, then you shouldn't be out on bail, right? The pendulum swung too far. And that happened in Albany. That didn't happen in the city. Yeah. And, you know, the mayor has asked for some of those changes to be made, and they were quite resistant. So, you know, it's, I, I think, you know, like I said, you, you have to sort of strike that balance, especially in a city where the you know majority of people who are being arrested are people of color. And how do you, how do you give them due process, but yet be tough on the people who, who need to be put away? Yeah, no, it's definitely a tricky job. I'm being, I'm being glib. And I think a lot of people were very disappointed that he decided to be like, no, oh, we'll just let, we'll just let Trump go. And uh, we're not going to continue with this. And, and um, you know, for those of us who don't live there, that's really the only reason we care that he exists. So, you know, I, I realize he has his own constituents that he has to please that are more important to that job than me upstate or somebody else living in Texas or Oregon or something. But uh, well, I think the difference would be, trust me, like I want Trump behind bars too. But for me, in my day-to-day -day life, I, I don't want people with guns in the Fulton Transit Center when I get out. I don't want people shooting up on 125th Street if my kid's getting the bus, right? Some of those, like prosecuting those crimes and have a bigger day-to-day -day impact. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. So you mentioned Albany. I want to, I, and this is a good place to end. Hochul has the nomination now. The lieutenant governor, Delgado, was my uh, congressman and has been in my kitchen, miraculously, for, mm -hmm. for five minutes. So uh, I, I'm very high on her. I think she's very good. I've been really impressed with the job she's done. What, what's, her, what's the perception of her down in the city? Is that it, do people like her? Are they indifferent? What, what's, your, what's your sense of? People like her. I mean, there was okay. some griping that she didn't come to campaign during the primary. Um, you know, a feeling of we get taken for granted, but I can understand why she made that decision. Um, I, again, talk about putting a great team in place. Catherine Garcia, who's, you know, head of operations for the state, who was almost our mayor, who is just a super smart, tough woman with an amazing life story. Uh, Karen Persicelli Keo, as secretary to the governor. So the list goes on and on. Lots of really veteran, get it done women around her, which I love. And, and I think she really has surprised people pleasantly, right? She was not as much of a known quantity. And I, yeah. I think she's done a good job. In, you know, she obviously, we all know, came in very tough circumstances, um, inherited a big mess with some real challenges, and I, I think has done an excellent job. I fully expect that she will win in November. I certainly hope that she does. Um, and I, I'm, I think she's prove or is proving and will continue to prove that she deserves this and that she's earned it that it wasn't sort of you know she didn't assume it because of circumstances 
Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think that everybody in New York State is just going to write in Andrew Giuliani, and that's good. He's going to be the next mayor. Um, I'm old enough to remember when Chris Farley made fun of him on SNL when he was a kid at the Yankee game, and I will always think of him in that way. And at the time, we thought, hey, Chris Farley, stop being mean to that kid. And now I think Chris Farley, just amazing the ability to see into the future to make fun of this kid who grew up to be this horrible uh, adult. So, um, no, I think she's, I hope she's going to win. And I, I think that having really good people in place in New York state is going to be so important in the, in the time ahead for the country. Cause I don't know what, I don't know what's going to happen with all the SCOTUS stuff. Um, I know that New York state went and, and codified a lot of this stuff with Roe and with the gun laws. And I feel like she's taken all this really seriously and that the, the, you know, Albany in general is taking it very seriously, which makes me feel safe, honestly. Um, and I hope other people, uh, from New York feel the same way enough people to keep her in place. Um, so let's end with that. What do you think, where do you see the city in the future? Like what is the next like 20, 25, 50 years, you know, until the, until the water levels turn it into Venice, <laughs> what, what, what do you see happening? <laughs> well, we do have plans that hopefully will get enacted to fight climate change. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm bullish as you are. I, I think it's, bright. I think, you know, the city will continue to attract talent. It will be a place of this sort of vibrant exchange of ideas. I think, unfortunately, because our liberties are under such massive attack by the Supreme Court, we will become more of a beacon. And I, and I think about this from a human perspective, and I think about it from a business perspective. If I'm in my 20s or 30s and I'm working for a big company, and I have the choice to be in Nashville or Austin, where now I have no rights, or be in New York. Well, I want to work for their office in New York, and yeah. and I I and and that's you know, I'm thinking about that through the prism of women's rights. But there will be more, unfortunately, I believe, with this court. And so, I really do think we're going to become even more of a haven. And that's sad to me to think of the country in that way. But I, I think, unfortunately, that's where we're headed. We all sort of bemoaned how polarized and how much we self-selected into communities before. But there was still some fundamental rights. I mean, what if they take away gay marriage? Oh, they're going to do that. That's, that's you know. So, I mean, just think about that. You know, the millions of people who are going to wake up and say, well, I have no rights unless I live in New York or California or whatever the handful of states are which is tragic to me, but but I think unfortunately will make us even more, we've always been appealing, um, but make us even more. And so, you know, we, we do stand for liberty here and democracy and, you know, the birthplace of the nation. And so I think it's going to be bright. Yeah, I agree. The Statue of Liberty ain't in Texas. It ain't in <laughs> Alabama. It's in New York. Actually, it's in New Jersey, but that's fine. <laughs> See, people do go to New Jersey, Greg. <laughs> they, they, they go down the shore you know I, I i consider new jersey and new york almost kind of the same kind of the same stuff i, I when i lived in hoboken i i joked that it was the sixth borough um but you know but i wanted to get out of new jersey like sinatra man i wanted out of there i wanted to go to new york i wanted to just be in new york and have my license say new york and then that's it i don't want to have another license i just want it always to be empire state ride or die kind of thing so um, okay, so it's called the Downtown Alliance. Um, are you on Twitter at all? Where can we find you? 
I am on Twitter um, and I am on Instagram as well as either JS Lappin or Jess Lappin. Okay. And Dan and Y uh, also. Um, and, and we actually have a pretty robust kind of social media presence for the Downtown Alliance. So um, lots of pretty pictures on Instagram. Okay. Yeah. Check it out. Um, come visit New York. If you live in, um, in a red state, move to New York. And uh, <laughs> um, Jess, it's so good to see you. Thanks so much for coming on. My pleasure. The Prevail theme song is by Matthew Fassa. Sofia Tereshenko provided the Russian introduction. Voice talent is provided by Tally Briggs, Signet Della, Stephanie St. John, Brett Petticord, Ryan Byrne at History Falls Apart, and me. Thanks to Allison Gill, Molly Hawkey, Kanai Williams, and everyone else at MSW Media. Please subscribe to the Prevail website with updates every Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday. Your $5 monthly subscription funds the site and the podcast. Visit gregoliar.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. Drive safely. Don't forget to tip your server. Until next time, we shall prevail.